Hi, and welcome to the first episode of Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast, where we'll discuss current legal and practical issues in finance and related sectors. I'm Joel Simon, a partner in Pillsbury's Finance Group. Let me start by thanking our nation's healthcare workers for doing battle against COVID-19 every day for the past couple of months, even before they knew what exactly we were facing. I'd like to welcome Russell De Silva, a senior counsel at Pillsbury who concentrates his practice in trade and other types of finance, who's here with me today to kick things off. Hello, and thank you very much for inviting me today. I'd like to ask you about something we're seeing a lot of clients doing these days which is deferring or renegotiating payments for goods and services. Seems like an obvious thing for a company to do in a crisis, but what might CFOs or general counsels need to be wary of when looking at this? Well, that is a very timely topic because we are indeed seeing that. Companies are contacting their suppliers and other trade creditors and asking for deferral of their customary uh, trade credit terms. Invoices that normally would be paid in 30 days Companies are asking that they pay in 60, and this is a logical thing to do. But what companies need to be careful of is to check their other financing agreements. The company has a bond issue, if the company has a syndicated credit agreement, or even a bilateral credit facility with a bank. It is likely that those financing agreements have financial covenants. Uh, those financial covenants, in turn, frequently rely on a defined term, indebtedness. There's a typical exclusion from most indebtedness covenants for trade payables in the ordinary course of business. But the question is, if you defer a trade payable, is it still incurred in the ordinary course of business? Some definitions are even more specific, and they might refer to trade payables no more than 90 days and, and not past due. So it may be that by negotiating this kind of deferral with trade creditors, a company is, in fact, putting these items from an exclusion of, from indebtedness into the definition of indebtedness and they're sub, thereby subject to financial covenants. That's a really interesting point, Russell. So then, I guess, when they calculate their ratios or other financial covenants, uh, that could result in a dramatically different result than they might have been expecting uh, without that. Um, and it also sounds like it could apply to other types of deferred payment arrangements as well. Well, that's right. Uh, if it applies to trade payables, uh, what about operating lease payments? What about equipment lease payments? These are items that the company might not have considered to be indebtedness, but are they transformed into indebtedness by reason of these deferrals? Bear in mind that the treatment of these items under GAAP is not necessarily the same as the treatment of these items in the contracts governing the company's financing. That's a good point, uh, Russell. Thanks for that. And that actually leads me to think of another point related to uh, indebtedness, which is obviously in the current crisis, a lot of companies are looking at accepting financial assistance offered by the government. The CARES Act recently passed, um, and now lots of guidance is coming out on how it's actually going to work, offers loans to large and small businesses, some of which can be forgiven in certain circumstances, and even outright grants or tax credits are available. Borrowers, as well as lenders providing the new government-backed loans, need to review their existing debt instruments to make sure that the incurrence of the new loans are permitted and that their terms don't violate existing covenants. And although we won't get into the weeds on issues like material adverse change today, 
companies should consider whether receiving or even applying for a government-backed loan or a grant is an admission of a downturn in business that could trigger a default under a current or prospective-looking covenant in their existing debt instruments, particularly on the forward-looking aspect because um, it's one thing to think about an existing default, but a lot of, of these covenants talk about prospects or, or some event that could happen in the future, and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. It may put pressure on a definition in uh, credit documents that people hadn't really been focusing on before. Yes, definitely. Uh, so one thing you mentioned to me before we started this morning was a financial statement issue that might bubble up in the coming months now that the first quarter has ended and companies with 120 days to deliver audited financial statements to their lenders start turning their attention to that. The companies that are on a December 31st fiscal year probably either have just completed or are about to complete uh, the preparation of their financial statements and have delivery requirements under their credit documents. There are some situations where a company may be delayed in the preparation and delivery of financial statements because they rely on third-party providers for certain information and for certain uh, analysis. Uh, if that's the case, the inability to deliver financial statements on a timely basis may actually constitute a default under credit documents. Now, one factor to consider is that there typically is a grace period in credit agreements for the delivery of financial statements. But bear in mind that the grace period controls only whether or not an event of default has occurred, which results in the remedy of acceleration. The failure to deliver the financial statements on time might nonetheless prevent a new borrowing under a revolving facility uh, because a small d default has occurred. One other thing that I think um, jumps to mind is there's the obvious issue of the substantive performance of the company and whether auditors uh, might need to take some sort of exception, like a going concern exception. But if an auditor can't perform the normal procedures, um, what, what does that result in? I think there's another, uh, another qualification that auditors might have to take for that. Well, that's right. If the auditors have to take a scope of audit uh, qualification, that may render the financial statements less informative for lenders, and it might even constitute a technical breach of credit agreements. Uh, sometimes credit agreements provide in detail what the format or what the, the uh, substance of financial statements need to provide. Sometimes it says that it needs to be consistent with the audit principles applied in previous years. Uh, bear in mind, too, that there are other kinds of audits that may be relevant to a credit facility, asset-based lending facility that's based on inventory and receivables, uh, frequently may require periodic audits of inventory. The inability of the lender or the lender's representative to come on premises and inspect the inventory can uh, end up in delays in the preparation of those those financial statements and might, once again, render an ABL facility not usable. That's a great insight, Russell, and I guess we'll have to see how that unfolds, particularly as April rolls into May. Um, so thanks bear, for that. Bear in mind also that there are companies that are not on the December 31st fiscal year, and they may not have uh, bumped up against this yet, but it's very good preparation to consider it now. And of course, to if uh, a company expects
be an issue to contact lenders sooner than later uh, to make appropriate arrangements so that a sensible uh, resolution is reached. Couldn't agree more. I'd like to close with an item from this week in history that in an unusual way points to a way through the current crisis. Fifty years ago, the astronauts of Apollo 13 safely went to the moon, but not so safely came back to Earth. Although the three men survived, um, it was not without a lot of trouble and a lot of fear. Today, there's talk of new space missions that with 50 years of learning will be safer, but not entirely safe. Similarly, we have 100 years of medical knowledge and advances since the occurrence of the Spanish flu in 1918, and decades of financial learning since the Great Depression, the stock market crash in 87, and the debt crisis in 08. All this knowledge is helping us today in the current crisis, but not without shocks to the system and unforeseen risks. But history has shown that we survive and come back stronger and better. It may take time, but it will happen. Russell, thanks for joining me. And to all of you tuning in, thank you for listening to Pillsbury's Industry Insights Podcast. Thank you all.